0: Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is journalist Brooke Baldwin, author, former CNN anchor, and a dear later-in-life friend. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct.
1: I talked to so many women who we talk about huddle and we talk about, I referenced, you know, back catalog friends, people who I've known for years and years you are never too late to add to your huddle you are never it is you are never too old to, to add to your circle of friends and what elise is alluding to is certainly something that I feel as well which is you know we live in these various chapters in our in our lifetimes you know things change we go through different phases we have these various aha moments I think for you and I we've both really deepened our spiritual practices and our intentionality around life and what we want to do and how we want to share ourselves and I think as we've been in these more vulnerable spaces on the other side of giant things we've been a part of. We've gotten to know ourselves better.
0: Many years ago, journalist Brooke Baldwin sat in her mother's bedroom and cried about the state of her career and her relationship. And while she was grateful for her mom's attention and support, she had a simultaneous thought. Where were her friends? Thus became her quest, ancillary to her daytime job as an anchor on CNN, to find her huddle. In her mind she wanted to reclaim the idea of huddle a macho sports term and apply it to groups of women working together for mutual goals like joy success and intimacy she wrote a book about this adventure understandably called huddle where she explores the power of female friendship and camaraderie all over the country and the way that when women come together they achieve improbably awesome things as her book went to press she announced her time at cnn was coming to an end and we met each other shortly after when we were both feeling stripped down and open to new adventures. Brooke is now part of my huddle and her enthusiasm for the power of friendship is palpable and contagious. Okay, let's get to our conversation.
1: I feel like the theme of my life is just to slow down, you know. I think just coming out of news, I'm just so used to like pacing. And so when I went to see the hip doctor this week in the city and he was like, yep, you need surgery. I was like, okay, how about next week? And he was like, okay, great. And then I realized that like, you should have a second opinion and you know, I should actually maybe try to get it. Like the universe, like sent this friend to me in in the middle of my day yesterday, who happens to be an expert in hip arthroscopy, who studied under the godfather of hip arthroscopy at HSS in Lenox Hill. And he was like... I can get you into the best guy, but like, you're going to have to wait till June. It was all this like crazy. Like I was about to up in some travels and I just feel like that's the theme of my life. Like I'm just now that slow down, slow down, <laughs> slow down, but
0: it's hard for you. I mean, it's funny. I, I've only known you post CNN, Yeah, but, and I feel like you were trying to get slow.
1: I did. I have been so slow. Successfully, I have slowed down. <laughs> Elise Lunin. But I'm I'm not always successful. And I think also as the world feels like it's reopening and somebody like flipped the switch and I was traveling, I was like in five cities in four weeks, the last couple of weeks. It's like, okay, I know how to be back. You know, I was saying to my husband, like, all I know is functioning in a space where I had a job where if something horrible happens, like I, you know, they're like, All right, Brooke, get on the plane to Manchester, England and go cover the Oriana Grande terror attack the next morning. You're going to be on a plane. You're going to fall asleep. You're going to be on TV globally at 8am for like hours and hours and hours. Go pack your bag. Like I, that's all I know how to do. So this whole notion of my husband's favorite word, wait. Yeah. Wait, Brooke. It's hard, but I'm trying to get better at it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's such a different way of operating in the world, but are you worried? Like I, I, sense this about you. And I know this about myself. It's like, I'm terrified if I take my foot off the gas, then I'll never be able to get any momentum going. Is that like a deep fear for you?
1: Hmm. Have I consciously thought about that? Mm, Maybe ish. I think, yes, I'm a big believer in momentum, but I have already acknowledged that by taking my foot off the cable news gas or the hard news gas, which has been 20 years of my life coming off of that extraordinary ride. And then meeting people like you in, in the, in my, to borrow our friend, Jen Rudolph Walsh's great phrase, my sacred pause, I have already so slowed down that honestly, what it is, is I'm just eager to create. It's less about, it's less about FOMO and it's more about, I'm really good at doing X, Y, and Z all I want to do is X, Y, and Z. And so that, that's what it's about. I just want to create and be a team with people and tell stories. And I want to mm. hurry up and do that like today.
0: <laughs> no, no, I get that. I feel like if that's if that's the instinct, I mean, I feel the same way when I didn't have a podcast for almost a year. I mean, yeah. I remember the exact length of time, but- That was really hard. I mean, I was finding other avenues to try to exercise that muscle, but to not be able to share is very difficult.
1: But also, Elise, and I think this is, you know, the way in which we met each other and through, you know, spirituality, like deepening my spiritual practice, practice this past year, deepening my meditation practice and doing all the things that, you know, moving my body, exercising, journaling. I know that, when I come out on the other side after this year that I will, I just know that I will be a more whole person and be better at what I want to do. I know that. So
0: do you think, you know, and it's funny reading huddle, I could sense your, I don't even know if I'd call it regret, but like the, the sort of the pervasive loneliness of that Mm. sort of life, which I very much relate to. That's one of the, the biggest emotions that comes mm. up for me in therapy is like, Loneliness? I feel lonely. Yeah.
1: What space for you?
0: Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think we, all we want is to be seen and known. Right. Yeah. And, and I certainly feel that way. Like I, I have a lot of great friends, many of whom have become my closest friends in the last two years, which yes. is really interesting. Like yes. complete not a complete, like some of my oldest, dearest friends are still my oldest, dearest friends. But yes. some of the people I'm most intimate with now
1: are the are newer, relatively
0: new ones. People I you, knew, but now know.
1: Yeah. I am so glad you made that point. And I think for people listening, I, I talked to so many women who, you know, we talk about huddle and we talk about, I, I referenced, you know, back catalog friends, people who I've known for years and years you are never too late to add to your huddle you are never it is you are never too old to to add to your circle of friends and what elise is alluding to is certainly something that I feel as well which is you know we live in these various chapters in our in our lifetimes you know things change we go through different phases we have these various aha moments I think for you and I we've both really deepened our spiritual practices and our intentionality around life and what we want to do and how we want to share ourselves. And I think as we've been in these more vulnerable spaces, on the other side of giant things we've been a part of, we've gotten to know ourselves better. And as we've gotten to know people like you and Scott and Richard and Taryn and Jen and others and Kristen, you know, they've gotten to know us at these real pivotal moments where where layers have been peeled back and- That's so precious. And even though we've only known these folks for the last year or two, that to me is equally as valuable as people who I have known for 20 years.
0: Mm, I love that. And it's a different way of relating. And I'm sure in some ways, you felt this too. I certainly felt this way being part of a big brand that mm. people, there was always a little, people were always curious about that, or they maybe wanted something from me or thought that I could do something for me, for them. And not that there were necessarily always strings attached, but I went through life constantly being like, okay, like that was like a, yeah."
1: That's,
0: it sounds insidious. And I, and I don't no no, like I know that, exactly but, what you but mean. This, yeah, exactly. Where I'm like, what do they want from me? Is it something that I can give them? Am I going to feel beholden? It was really a boundary issue, right? Do they only want to talk to me because they think mm-hmm. I can do something for them, which mm-hmm. I'm sure was not that uh, frequent, but to actually be stripped down mm. and then go in and just be just, just me. Like, just, just Elise. Me.
1: Just Brooke. Just that exactly. was that was part of my conversation when I first talked to our mutual friend Carissa, who said to me, "You know, you get so used to being Brooke from CNN that it's like." I'm just so used to having like the sentence being, Oh, nice to meet you. I'm Brooke Baldwin from CNN. It's not just, I'm just Brooke Baldwin. And you think about people you introduce yourselves to yourself, to places you want to go places you want to stay. Like it just all rolls off the tongue. And I have, I'm totally fine with it now. But in those early months, I remember just being like, and I'm Brooke Baldwin. (laughs) Take a beat. (laughs) I'm Brooke Baldwin. And worrying that, that is that enough? I'm used to having the machine be part of my identity, and I remember Carissa saying, "Eventually, you know, it all—all it, it, all the people will want is just Brooke." And listening to your mm-hmm. podcast with Carissa, I know you guys have had similar conversations where it's like you—you you don't need—you don't need the machine behind you; you just need you. And that was a really big aha for me. Yeah,
0: no, it reminds me of that Anne Lamott quote, which I'll butcher, I'm sure, but essentially she's like. The lighthouse doesn't go around the island being a lighthouse. The lighthouse just stands there and is a lighthouse, which is such a beautiful sentiment. And she says it so much better than I just did. But so I love good. that for you, too. It's just this. It's very confusing as people in general. I think this, this is widely applicable where you mm. start to under. You're like, what's me? Mm. Where do I end? Where does something else begin? And when mm. you're creative and you're giving your energy to something mm. that's outside of you, which is can be amazing, right? But that you start to understand, you 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 lose the ability to adjudicate between, mm. like for you, am I just another you know butt in a seat? Yep. on yep. a news desk, right? Like, are people coming for the news, or they coming for me? For me, yeah. yeah. How do you? And I guess you get the validation of ratings and throughout that sort of career. But is yeah. it and it's something it's, you get
1: addicted to, or is it a bad thing? <sighs> It's funny. I was watching that, the John Stewart Apple show where he was actually talking about media and he was talking to, did this panel and he was talking to Soledad O'Brien and Soledad, who I had the honor of filling in for a bazillion times uh, back when she hosted the morning show at CNN, man, she was a hard worker and she would just be in the weeds. But her point with John was, you know, you could, you could get minute by minutes. So you could know like at any minute, like I hosted a two hour show every day for 10 years on CNN. And so you could know all right, well, what was the story that didn't do well? What was the story that did? And, you know, we would have major conversations around, let's say like a really, we would call like a, like a, how do I say this? Like a real meat and potatoes sort of story, like a real, you know, newsy story. Like what's happened, what's been happening, obviously this atrocity in Ukraine, this genocide, you know, but you can start seeing after a few weeks, like when the viewership starts dropping off and when people, when viewers, when Americans start getting bored of Ukraine Mm -hmm. and want to know more about Will Smith's slap at the Oscars and you have to have a real conversation around like, all right, well, how do we thread the needle and make sure we keep our journalistic integrity and make sure we're giving people the the news that really matters versus what people are maybe talking about around the dinner table. And, And for me and how I took that in, I actually, I actually, I would say most anchors, probably at CNN and certainly all the executive producers and producers got all of the ratings every day and they would come out at a certain time every afternoon. You can just tell like the newsroom got quiet and people were looking, you're sort of like your report card every day. And I never got the ratings. I just didn't want to be. I just didn't want to be married to it. And I told my producers, my producers knew it and they were, you know, looking at them all the time. And in certain days I would obviously ask and I can be very competitive and wanted to be number one. But I was very mindful of not always wanting to be graded and really trying to be driven what I really felt was newsworthy and how we should lead our shows. And just because people weren't paying attention to some story that I felt really mattered shouldn't mean that we shouldn't continue to tell that story or lead that story the next day. I'm exceedingly
0: careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1500 square foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, sure, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product content. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetleton oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18-plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark, it's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com thread. Start ritual or add Essential for Women 18 plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for twenty-five percent off. The attention economy is a really difficult metric, I think, particularly for something like news. It's such yeah. a downward spiral. And you and I, we you know we're we were born in the same year. Yeah. Obviously, we've had different media trajectories, and I've never been in hard news, but <laughs> even working at a magazine, at magazines for a decade and having those one-way conversations and then Mm. the transition to digital and getting that sort of feedback,
1: Mm.
0: you can understand it was very easy to predict the media landscape based on clicks yes, and a completely different, that being the sole metric rather than engagement or sentiment, how dangerous that game was and I hope we engineer our way out of it because I think in a way podcasts are such a great medium. One, because I think audio and actually hearing things and hearing references. And we love is...
1: you, Elise Lunin. We love <laughs> we love pulling the thread with Elise Lunin.
0: <laughs> you're hilarious. But but I love podcasts too, because when you get into a show yes. and you're like, I oh, I don't know if this is for me, but I'm just gonna trust and yeah. Those tend to be when I'm listening to other people, those tend to often be the most rewarding podcasts, like that unexpected Mm -hmm. insight where you're just like, I got to, you know, as a creator, you're like, I'm just going to tell the stuff that I think if it's interesting to me, I'm going to hope that it's interesting to other people. It's a leap of faith.
1: But you can also, with a podcast, you know, you can jump in the deep end of conversation with someone. Versus, you know, when I would sit at the news desk, as I did every day for a decade, you know, I, I would I would get very wrapped up in certain segments and certain guests that we would be booking. And had, you know, if it were a day where we didn't have breaking news and we'd have to throw the rundown out and the teleprompter would get blanked, and we. You know, I'd fly by the seat of my pants for an indefinite amount of time. You know, it it would be those moments and those those interviews that would matter so much to me. And you can only imagine. You know, you're watching the clock and you're mindful. And 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 you know, the producer is never really in my ear unless they're like saying, you know, one minute or rap, or if I'm totally missing a thought and they're like, you got to ask about X. But you know, you get four and a half minutes into a into an interview on live TV and and it flies by. And then you're getting wrapped, and you're barely three and a half questions into something you could go eight questions deep into. In some interviews, you're like, "Praise Jesus, like let's end this thing. This is not interesting." But a lot of times, <laughs> but a lot of times it is interesting, and you, I, 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 I often had that longing of needing more, and yeah. I didn't get it, and. I, that's where I am now, just in wanting more and wanting more, and to be in the deep end of storytelling. But, but yeah, that was just another piece of what it's like hosting those shows. Yeah.
0: But I think that that's and that's that's the book, right? Is yes. like you yes. needing to scratch a deeper itch, yes. starting this project, and then having ghostwritten so many books. I have held a lot of people's hands. It's interesting how books can unmake and remake your life in a mm. way that I don't think that that has been. Maybe studied or understood. How do you mean? Well, I used to think that I was—I thought I was a curse (laughs) because I would work on a book project, not always, but often something really bad might happen, and to the person who was working on the book. Mm. And I, so I was like, "Am I a curse?" And I'm like, "No, actually, lots of breakup, disillusion—I've experienced a sort of death secondhand." But I think what happens is when you transition, it's obviously a different for you. Book is a different medium than you're used to, but you start a really deep excavation of yourself. Mm. And as you write, it's like, I don't know if, I don't think you mentioned this, but they say research is me search. And Mm -hmm. so it was clear like how personal this book was for you and that I'm not surprised that you, in a way you're so changed. Do, Do you feel dramatically different after you? I know your whole life, changed with the publication of your book. Yes. I remember
1: writing a line in the epilogue. I can see exactly where I was sitting at our two top kitchen table, looking at the Freedom Tower in Soho and writing the line. Like I have a sinking or I have a, I have a, I have the suspicion that my life is about to drastically change something to that effect or that this, this writing this book is, is changing my life. And that was before I knew definitively what was happening with me at CNN. But having sat with these various women, you know, anyone from extraordinary, ordinary women whose names you might not know, teachers who led strikes in West Virginia, new moms reaching out to other women, huddling with them through Facebook, military spouses who, you know, know how to huddle through various, you know, in the virtual space before we all had to learn that through COVID. To, to the likes of you know Megan Rapino and Alicia. Garza and Stacey Abrams and Shannon Watts, you know, like to, to dominate Kren. you know, this is an example of, of someone, she's the only three-star Michelin chef woman in America. She, her restaurant is Atelier Kren in San Francisco. And I'll never forget sitting with her. This is all, I was lucky that I got to do all, most of these big interviews in person before the world shut down. And I was sitting with Dom in the, uh, the Bowery Hotel in New York, and we had this whole interview in the, like kind of in the middle of the lobby drinking tea, and she started talking about her father and the legacy of her father and her life and in her work, and then she started to weep and I started to weep. And I think as I had been just sharing oxygen in rooms with women like this, it had started to change me. I started showing up like my, I was holding myself differently. My shoulders were back. I would, I would, I felt more confident. I I, I realized that, you know, the power in saying no and the power in truly women leaning on each other for the greater good. And I found myself showing up differently at work in a way that, you know, where previously I was just so grateful to have my job and I would, you know, sure, let's cover this story. Who do you want me to talk to? How do you want me to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It became more like, no, like these are the stories I want to cover this is how long I want to have this conversation. And, you know, you don't always, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen when it comes to creating shows and, and it's my face. And I had a lot of say, but you know, in some cases I wish I had more toward the end. And I think that speaking with and sitting with all of these women, it, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. I, I mm-hmm. felt changed. And then the process of course, of writing the book changed me. And there is no going back.
0: Yeah. No, you can sense it. I mean, you can feel it in the the energy and the trajectory of the book itself and the writing I and mean, I'm sure in the revising and things were moved around, but like and I guess I know you. It's it's funny to read this book now and know Because you only you.
1: know me now. Yeah.
0: I only know you now and but I also can imagine you um I I can see it. I can see the whole I can see the line. I can see your life in a way. And I relate deeply to you. Even, you know, we're both tall women. The section near the end about Taryn and the class Mm. and your body. Mm. And I thought that was so brave and it was hard to write the way that you put that out there. And and the fact that you also acknowledged like you were this confident, sweaty, (laughs) like shot putting girl. And that's who I think of you. I think of Mm. you as like an athlete. I think Mm. of you as so powerful. Mm. And I'm glad that that wasn't completely shamed out of you.
1: No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. But there were, you know, for many years, I was this confident kid, grew up in Atlanta You know, very fortunate with my family was involved. I was always a curious kid, just as I am now. You know, I wanted a piece of everything. I wanted to see what ballet, tap, jazz, soccer, (laughs) gymnastics, softball, you know, ran for president of my class more times than you should theater, played a male role in Macbeth, my senior year through the shop, put in the discus. Like I wanted a piece of all of it. I I swam on the swim team for two years because my best friend was going to make the Olympics and I wanted to just swim alongside her. Her to know what that felt like. Like, I mean, looking <laughs> back, I, I, I mouthed all the words to the Handel's Messiah, you know, my senior year because I wanted to see what it would feel like to, to sing alongside people who could actually sing. I, I don't know who I thought I was, but I was just interested and curious and wanted to taste it all and did have this confidence. And I really do credit my mom for being my original huddle, for instilling that in me. But the second I moved into this very male dominated culture that is TV news. And I had no idea. I just was like, I just want to, I was like this Pollyanna, like, I just want to tell stories. I can like cut my hair short and wear the jewel tone, you know, blazers like anyone else and get out there and talk about right and wrong and listen to, listen to both sides and let the viewer uh, decide for his or herself. And, and I just had all the right I thought that I had all the right motivations for going into journalism and then quickly realized, wow, this really is a newsroom, mostly full of men. And the few women who I was working with as cub reporters were, you know, had sharp elbows and doing shitty things behind the scenes to try to take me down or take an assignment I had away from me. And that was like a, you know, a a cruel realization, but obviously like reality and Brooke, you got to learn how to grow up and live and function in the working world. And you know, then moving through this just really inc- competitive cutthroat, but also like work all the holidays, not really see your family, not have girlfriends in anywhere in my twenties, because I'd be, you know, just when you start getting comfortable in one city, your contracts up and you're moving on to the next, or just when you thought you'd made a friend, her contract was up. She was, she's got the big job in Kansas city and you're still stuck, you know, in, in Huntington, West Virginia. It was just like this bizarre existence. And never really dating the right person and just always putting my career first until it all kind of came to a head in my late twenties, early thirties, when I I got this opportunity to freelance at CNN, my dream growing up in Atlanta, right? You cheer for the Braves and you know all about Ted Turner and CNN. And <laughs> I tell this whole story in my book, but I have this yellow chair moment where I basically move back into my parents' house at age 28, 29 because my boyfriend cheated on me, my parents are about to get you know divorced after forty years of marriage. My brother pieces out to go get his you know master's in London, and I have like this front row seat to everything, and I'm reeling. And oh, by the way, it's 2008, and it's the recession, and CNN's like, oh hey, we thought we think we, you're really great, but just kidding, we can't really hire you because we frozen all our positions. And I'm barely working. I'm like working overnight hours for CNN International as a kid talking about geopolitics in Germany. And I have no business doing that. And hashtag imposter syndrome. And I'm just having a moment and I'm (laughs) sitting in my and I'm sitting in my mom's bright, sunny, happy, yellow chair in her bedroom, weeping buckets of tears and thinking I should just quit. And I'm not a quitter but I'm thinking of quitting. And I'm pretty sure she quoted some Pocahontas lyrics from the Disney movie about hanging there. And it's just around the river bend and bless her heart. But I had this also, Elise, I had this moment of thanks mom, but also like, hi, I'm 28, 29. And I'm sitting in my mother's bedroom and where are my girlfriends and where is my huddle? And what have I done wrong in my life? You know, what like (laughs) snapshot of my world, And that was a real moment where I, I, after that moment, I started shifting and prioritizing, by the way, I dumped the guy, shifting all of my, the way I thought about women and prioritizing collectives of women started shifting then. And I think that's also when the seeds of Huddle were born.
0: Visit roberthalf.com today. I thought that that was fascinating. I think it was Kristen Goss, and I've never, I want to read her book, The Paradox of Gender Equality, but I thought that was fascinating how essentially when you and I were born, the drought, that is the moment when white women, particularly right, white middle class women were like, done, we've accomplished yep. our ends and yep. we stopped huddling. Our entire lifetimes. Yeah. And what was it? This was this data was amazing. The rate at which women's groups testified before Congress suddenly declined dramatically and a large number of female civic and political organizations faded.
1: Yep. Yep. So if it, well, as you're listening, it, this interesting juxtaposition between being a privileged white woman from the South, very different from moving through the world as a black or brown women, a woman, it, it, it was fascinating for me to learn from, we're referencing this feminist professor at Duke, Kristen Goss, who did all this work and she essentially was saying the in the 1980s, 90s and 2000s after women had done so much work uh, in the revolutionary space even talking about the in the in the days of June Cleaver and Betty Crocker hopping the white picket fences after they made the perfect dinner for their husbands and going to you know picket for for women's rights you know and all these women testifying in front of congress in the 80s, 90s and 2000s women white women just stopped huddling. And it was she referred to it essentially as a a huddle drought, which I was we were born in 1979. So it was essentially my entire lifetime. So once I started tuning in and noticing how women were coming together. So as a anchor at CNN covering the 2016 presidential election, if we can remember back, that was, you know, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And you know, they had me. I was riding on the backs of Harleys with with Trump bikers for Trump. I was interviewing, you know, the Bernie Bros, the millennials who were all about Bernie Sanders. I was interviewing women of all shapes, sizes, colors, ages, who all wanted to see the glass ceiling shattered. My my realization was that left, right, and center women were coming together and and becoming active politically in a way I had not seen in my lifetime. And so to realize that. That hadn't happened for white women for three decades was was fascinating for me. But then on the flip side for black women, you know, I interviewed a lot of women of color for this book. And they would say to me, well, like, why are you writing a book about huddle? Because, like, we've been doing this forever, you know, and I wanted to honor that and Acknowledge that and I wanted to put a name to the thing that that we have been doing for for so many in the case of black women before slavery for for centuries and and, and legitimize this and and put a word to it, which is huddle. But to know that black women, and, and in particular, not only the black historian I spoke with, but the, the women, the black women founders of of Girl Trek really were specific with me in saying, Brooke, it wasn't just because of slavery, out of necessity, when the husbands were sold at the auction blocks and the, the mothers were left behind to huddle with other women to survive, you know, huddling predated slavery in a way because it's just in black women's, you know, in in their bones, in their blood. And that's why I started my huddle journey with the black women judges in Harris County, Texas, because I wanted to honor that legacy and that tradition. And and that's why I started in Houston.
0: Well, I want to talk about the judges. I want to go back to to this idea that it's uh, in Black women's blood, it's in. It's a collective female value that I think has been driven out of all of us by the patriarchy. Mm. And I was talking on Instagram with someone who was like, "Have you read Sylvia Federici?" And I was like, "Yes, I love her. She is. She started the Wages for Housework project. She's a, a radical feminist professor, and she has written a lot about witchcraft, which is on the rise actually in various parts of the world. Hmm. And she talks about it as witch hunting." And the emergence of capitalism going hand in hand. And it's all, it's, it's complicated. But, and I don't want to take us on too much of a tangent, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. this idea that witch hunting and women gathering, she talks about how gossip, the actual etymology of gossip is godparent. And that it became a negative. Huh. And it became associated primarily with women. And women were forbidden to sort of gather and babble. Huh, and that's the interesting. Collect, collecting of women became dangerous and typically we did life together and so we were we were split up we were aligned under patriarchs and taught to be wary of each other that's interesting and so i think it has like i don't know it's it's something i'm i'm really interested in trying to understand like w- was there a moment when we were torn away from each other and taught to not only Disassociate, but distrust. But I do think it is, as you write about in the book, this is our birthright, yes. and we were all we were supposed to be in these collective, supportive communities with these deep sister-like relationships. So I just wanted to say, I feel like it's we are really far away from that. But our collective—I mean, you see what happens when women come together, gather.
1: She yes, happens yeah i mean i the, my the entire book is examples whether it's in the political space the activism space the sports space the mom space you know how when you have this collective of women or or you know i dare anyone listening to think of one super successful woman and and I will tell you that behind that woman is her huddle. Like we 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 are meant to be here, and we are meant to be here leaning on one, en- one another together. Like whenever you text me, Elise, and you're like, "This is happening with me," or, you know, I, I genuinely feel like your success is my success, and vice versa. And Same. yes, and yes, let's acknowledge that women can be total witches to one another, and there are many a, book and Broadway play and movie about this, but I just didn't want to focus my time on that. I wanted to show women of all ages, races, ethnicities, that we are better together. And also I see you, if you are lonely to your point, I know loneliness, you know, loneliness, and there's a way out of that loneliness through huddling.
0: Yeah. And just to, underline one part of that I think that we're taught that you know this mean girl queen bee that it's a biological reality of who we are and it's cultural this is what we've been taught this is not biological and so I think we'll hopefully I feel like we'll start to shake it out of our systems and model something different so let's talk about the judges because I was I was openly weeping on the plane when I was reading about these 19 judges in Harris County. Yes. Is that right? Yes, Harris okay. County,
1: Texas. Yep. Okay. Yep.
0: Will you tell us the story?
1: Okay. So, let's see. Back in, if we all remember back to 2018, this is, you know, after Me Too and Time's Up, and this is when, you know, the the biggest, largest number of women were running for office at the local, state, and federal level. And I remember sitting, you know, doing my show, sitting at the news desk, and so many women were winning that year, and our cup sort of runneth over in terms of, you know, the various women we could feature and talk about on on my show or any given day that week, it was it was extraordinary what was happening. And There was this little story in Ruby Red, Texas in Harris County, which is Houston, where these 19 black women were running for these judge positions and all of them together had an insane amount of experience. Right. You line them up next to, you know, various white men who were up for similar judicial positions. And I I bet you that they would, you know, out out experience them like times three And they all, unbeknownst to themselves, in 2018, decided to run for these judge positions. And only after they won the primaries and were sitting in this room and started to look around the room and count the Black faces, did they realize how many Black women were in this together. And that is when they decided to huddle. That is when they realized that their power was in the collective. And again, in black women's blood, you know, they, each of them were either like a Delta or an AKA, you know, we talked a lot about black sororities and how they went through black churches, how they were at, you know, beauty salons, how interestingly a number of black men were wary of having these black women become judges because of the stereotype that these black women would actually be really, really tough On the black men who they would be trying in the court system and so slowly but surely they're gaining all this momentum and it's just sort of like a little sleeper story happening in harris county as the rest of the country is watching you know the the federal the the u.s senate and government governor uh, races and i remember that day when Every single one of them had won their race, and it, it, it made you know the, the the Times and CNN.com covered it, and you know we couldn't cover it, it on together, my show. They did it together, right? They did it all together, and and how it made news really was they had this clever idea of all going into this mock courtroom and dressing, looking like judges, wearing black and white, and taking this one giant photo. And they managed to get every single one of them in this room on this very day, and the photo went viral. And, you know, they, they had like Beyonce who's from Houston, you know, like not like her music playing in the background and they take this photo and this photo is what really propels them to help to really win. I mean, they become rock stars in Harris County as they're out, you know, stumping for votes. Like they're a little girl, every, every, they were describing to me, everything from like little girls to, to janitors at the restaurants they were going to, like everyone wanted their autograph and in the end they won and I think part of their secret sauce. A lot of them were mothers. One of them was was like the first les- out, out lesbian judge. I want to say in the the family court, and you know she had, had she had a a baby at the time. They all their husbands were looking out for them. Their kids were out. It was a real like group thing they got on a text chain they were all on a private facebook group you know huddling virtually they they pulled it off and 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 even after they won they would tell me stories of you know sitting you know up a, in the top of the courtroom over presiding over a case and if someone had a question over you know a certain penal code and they didn't know the answer they would literally stop the 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 case the trial they would jump down to their phone uh, from the bench and ask their, you know, huddle text chain, that they call themselves black girl magic. So like the black girl's magic text chain, somebody would chime in with, ah, you should think about this, or this is the code or what have you. And so, you know, they would ask for help, which is something at least that we women don't always like to do. And they are all now I so I'm so in touch with them because sitting with them that day for brunch, I'll never forget the restaurant in Houston. Weezy's table eating like, you know, shrimp and, you know, shrimp and grits and biscuits for like five hours with these six of the 19 women filled me with. I don't even know if I have the words, but to, to to have the privilege to now know these women, to be in touch with them, to know that they're all running again this summer. It's now four years later, all hoping to win, all hoping as Black women to change the, the the face of the justice system in Harris County, Texas is a story that everyone should know. And if you are listening and you're not driving or you're not walking and you can Google, Google Black Girls Black Girl Magic. Harris County, Texas, and you'll see this photo of them and I'm guaranteeing you you'll, you'll you're you're going to go down a rabbit hole.
0: And there had never been a black woman elected, right?
1: Uh, I think there had been a black woman elected, but I think there had never been 19, 19. at the same time elected. Okay. Yeah. Got
0: it. Yeah, I loved you were writing about them and the fact that they would Call each other in for help. Yes. You just mentioned, and you wrote, what if we were able to admit so easily that our value isn't diminished by the degree of advice we receive from our trusted peers? Why don't more women talk about this? Why hadn't I found more strength and comfort in leaning on other women in the workplace? Mm. And how many opportunities had I missed over the years by letting this amazing resource go untapped? Which I th- thought a lot about that too. And I loved the moment in the book where you talked about telling another woman your salary as she went in uh, to negotiate.
1: Yep. I did. Why
0: isn't there more of that too?
1: I, I just, I think maybe it goes back to your whole point. I'm going to have to Google this woman you're referencing and how this notion of women coming together is something, something was is wrong with it. But we need to shout from the rooftops that everything is right with it and we are better together. And the only way to, you know, fight the patriarchy is to all come together and to come together, you know, not all looking the same or of the same beliefs, but making sure we're diversifying our huddles, but like, uh, why why not share our knowledge? Like let's embolden one another, whether it's, this is, I mean, I I, I couldn't believe I, I shared my salary and it, it wasn't something I had really thought about doing because it's such a taboo thing. And by the way, when you get to a point, I mean, listen, I started out in TV news making like, I don't know, $19,000. I mean, I did not make a lot of money for a long, long time. And then all of a sudden you, you kind of do, and then you're like really shy about it. And you don't want to tell, especially your other girlfriends who, you know, aren't maybe making as much as you or even in TV. And, and I knew this friend of mine was about to go in with her boss and I knew that she needed to be, she needed to know what she was worth and she needed to know what other women in that space, you know, were making, including myself. And I felt very vulnerable sharing that information with her and she's still, you know, in the business and kicking ass and I'm proud of her. And after that, I talked about it on my show and I, I still have young women who've come up to me and said, wow, Brooke, like ever since you shared that, I I've, I had a woman slide into my DMs who I barely even know, you know, who was like asking me questions about it. But it's just the kind of thing that we should feel empowered to do because men do it all the time. Men have done this all the time and they help one another and they go golfing together and they talk about what jobs are coming out, you know, and hey, buddy, you should look out for this or they they sponsor, you know, men sponsor other men. I was talking to a company recently just saying like for... uh, if you are a successful man at the top of a company, I challenge you to sponsor a woman and bonus points for a woman maybe who's doesn't have the same skin color as you, assuming that most men still like running companies or white men. You know, the, the only way that we can diversify and broaden the spectrum is by bringing those other women up and giving the other women a leg up about if there's a job opening that's coming available, like let someone else have the heads up on it. I, I could go off on a whole tangent on that, but yeah. yeah.
0: No, I mean, I remember having a drink with Sally Krawcheck from Elvest years ago, and she was just, we were talking about how women have been taught that women, money is not for us, and we were conditioned to not speak about it. That it's mm. And as you say, men are- conditioned to talk about it that it is for them that they Mm -hmm. should be fluent in it and which I think is also in its own way can be repressive but she asked me she was like how much money do you make and I Mm. told her and Mm -hmm. she she was like she almost fell off her bench she was like I have asked that question so many times and no one has actually ever told me which I thought was really (laughs) interesting
1: like why is that revolutionary why is that revolutionary I
0: feel like comp cop to me feels like it should be transparent the fact that it's not transparent suggests that it's shameful or mm. unequal mm. or that I think it should be open I think it should be transparent I think it should be entirely you you must you need to be able to defend it and I think then sort of all this lack of parity becomes evident and so I don't know
1: I wonder if some of it too, too, for me, just growing up in the South, it's like, just be grateful for what you're given and keep your mouth shut. You know, who am I to dare ask for more? Like I, even though I've worked so hard to earn the spot and I'm continuing to work so hard every day to earn the spot. And as the woman or as the younger woman, I'm thinking I have to do like five times the, the amount of homework just to continue to be able to hold my own. Yeah. I just, why not ask for more? I mean, now I'm like shouting from the rooftops. I have a best friend who was just negotiating a new job and she was just like, you know, I'm not quite, I'm almost where I want to be, but 5,000 less. I was like, dude, ask for what (laughs) you want. Ask for all, ask for the 5,000. And guess what? She got it. She got everything she asked for. Why aren't we all doing that? I woke up at 2 a.m. last night, drenched in
0: sweat, throwing bedding off of me every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about ChiliPad by SleepMe? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally Visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code THREAD. This offer is available exclusively for Pulling the Thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep s-l-e-e-p dot me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life going back to the fact that you are a confident child Mm. and i i'm curious for your thoughts on this i was also very confident Mm -hmm. i think that most girls and maybe people will refute this But I feel like most girls are like, we know who we are. We are confident. I don't think that there's a confidence gap. I think it's just conditioned out of us to express our confidence because you're shamed for being too big or too big for your britches. Mm,
1: Lord, I've done work on that. Oh, have you? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, I just (laughs) grew up hearing, don't be too big. Don't be too big for your britches. And now I I have this whole... I have this whole uh, thing, BBG, BB, Brooke Baldwin gets bigger britches. Like I, I just, I did some work with my, with a life coach now dear friend of mine. I I just, uh, it's this whole notion of don't ask for more. It's, it's what we were talking about. It's like, all right, be grateful for what you have. And don't, don't shout too loud or don't ask for too much. And, you know, keep your mouth shut. I don't know if that's the South in me talking or bless, my mother for instilling in me confidence, but also the whole, like, I remember her coming into the CNN newsroom. I was still like a baby anchor, you know, like maybe 31, 32. And I remember her meeting the intern like one summer and she was like, Brock, why have you not taken her out to lunch? And you know, all of this and that. And I, I think I'm pretty generous with the the younger women and the interns, but she just like, you know, she was so I almost felt like shamed in that moment and and outed that I was just like, you know, CNN anchor who wasn't like being nicer to the intern or or going so out of my way. And it, but that's just my, my that's my mom. I, I, like My whole family keeps me very, very humble. But equally, there is some of that and not the intern piece. And obviously I took her out, but there's there's the other there's the other piece, which is it's okay to want more. It's okay to ask for more. You know, there was a line in my book where I was talking about early on when I first was coming on this one show at CNN and, you know, I I was joking. I think I wrote something like, you know, if they had asked me to spiral in on ropes, you know, into the studio upside down, I would have literally been like, awesome. Where do you want me to buy the ropes? You know, I was so, I was so excited and I'd worked so many years to get to this moment. I was going to, if you want me to come in upside down, uh, like twirling, no, no problem. And like, looking back on that, I'm like, Rock, shame on you. You know, ne- I would never, I would never, I would say, no, I feel so empowered for so many reasons now to, to, to do that. It's the whole, like getting bigger britches. It's the, it's the saying, no, it's the, it's the having boundaries. It's the speaking up uh, to your boss when something feels uncomfortable. You know, if I could, if I could say anything and I did, you know, to, to, and I do to younger women, it's, you know, speak the F up, speak up wherever. complicated, right? Because it is it is complicated, but I would I would posit that if you start speaking up and not in a whiny, you know, find your moments, have grace, but speak up early. Because when you only start speaking up later, speaking from experience, when you only start speaking up later, it's I think that it falls on deaf ears. But when you start mm-hmm. speaking up earlier and you're speaking up in the right moments for the right things it's it it's successful and you're listened to and you're respected. I felt respected, but there are there are things I should have said earlier that I didn't. Right. Like learn from No, learn from
0: I that. know. It makes it totally makes sense, but I also feel like similar to you. I think I credit a lot of my early success in publishing to being no one was asking me to you know, I know no one asked you to come down to stripper pole, but no one was asking me to to do anything like that. But I was will I was willing to do almost anything. That's what I mean. All I know, the
1: hours, all the days, <laughs> however, whoever, like whatever. Yes. Sign me up Just say yes. And I also think that there was a time in your life, 20s, early 30s were like, you should do those things. If you want to have a top job, you know, you can't just sit on your laurels and, and do nothing. You have to Work and sacrifice, but there's a,
0: a fine line. No, Thank I you. hear you. It's difficult. It's difficult, and I think I would say I would put the onus on us to. I mean, neither of us have full time corporate jobs right now, but if anyone is listening and they have power in their organization, the more mm-hmm. that you model and assert yourself yes. within a company, the more you give permission to younger yes women.
1: Say that again, Elise. I'm pulling give- Renee Brown. Say it again.
0: <laughs> the more you assert yourself, the more you give permission to younger women so that they aren't labeled difficult, yes. but you establish a precedent as someone with power that it's okay to say no, it's okay to have boundaries. Yes. It's difficult. You have to I have to hope though. I I do feel like younger generations and we're not that old. I will say that, but that I think people are doing it better.
1: I do too. I do too. I do too. I I that's the one part of my book that people ask me a lot about, like various generations. What have I found? And that's the one space where I didn't do research. But I I I've had I've been eyes wide open and talking about my book so much to various people. And I do think that younger women coming up, this this youngest generation Pause. So I was in Minneapolis for the College Hoops NCAA Championship. And not to name drop, but I was sitting with some pretty amazing professional women athletes. And I was sitting next to Megan Rapino, and we were around her fiance, Sue Bird, who's got like five years on her. And then five years younger than Megan is Brianna Stewart, who plays with Sue in Seattle, who's like late, late 20s. And it was so interesting to talk to Megan and we were laughing because, you know, she would sometimes talk to Sue who's closer to our age and Sue, maybe like whatever they're talking about. Sue may say, "Mm, I don't know if we should do it, can do it. And then Megan's like, Oh no, like five years younger. She's like, Oh no, we can totally do it. And Brianna Stewie is like, Oh, I've already done it. And and that was the whole (laughs) point being generationally just, that is exactly what we're talking about. So I have the utmost hope in these younger women coming up. And I actually enjoyed so much being, you know, a 40 something year old, you know, CNN anchor with these 20 somethings in my office. You know, we talk about mentorship. You can also, you know, you can reverse learn so mentorship. much reverse mentorship, yeah. learning from these younger women, like be open to, I'm so open to that too, because I think you're right. I I'm hopeful too.
0: What do you, what do you want to do? Like, what's, what do you want to do next? What do I want to do next? With all this energy, you yeah. clearly, I don't know if. I don't know if you've hit like the nader of recovery and you're really back, or you just don't want to go down there in turn- terms. Yeah, because <laughs> you haven't you you haven't been out of the game as long as I have, and you are. You bounce. You're bouncing back. Oh please! But
1: what- Look at you, Miss. I have a podcast and I'm about to publish a well, it's very book. different
0: than daily TV.
1: It's different. It's def- definitely different pace wise, and I've had to really like t- intentionally or against my own wishes like slow myself down, as we talked about. But I think for me, and you know this, but I would love. I, I really believe in. I, I want to continue using my skill set of you know journalism, interviewing, listening, curiosity, storytelling, and just take it from like pull it up and take it. From cable news, where I'm talking to people in five minute increments, move it over here and drop it into hopefully a, a deeper end of the swimming pool of storytelling where it's, you know, hosting and producing an unscripted doc series for a premium streamer network where I can be out among people, be in the field, be in America or who, who knows where, where I'm gathering the stories and with people in person, kind of like going back to my reporter roots and, and telling the stories and, and lifting the veil. And I have, I have very, I've been going through so many, you know, concepts of things that are really authentic to me that I think people might be interested in that would be, you know, zeitgeisty and a little edgy, but also inspirational and and leave people with some hope. And that's what I'm hoping to do. It's been a slow pivot and I'm like, fingers crossed that, you know, someone we'll is interested in, in, in my ideas and will, will help me tell these stories and we'll get it done. Yeah.
0: What's your, like in the, in terms of the me search, what are mm-hmm. the big, what are the big questions or themes? Are there any, or is it just, you just want to report America? Well,
1: as you know, I, Martha Beck and her integrity book, as you have had her on your podcast, I've gotten to know her. I got to interview her for a, a gig I had with the app calm and I just, her book about integrity has become my bible and i have it is i haven't there has not been a day where i've not thought about integrity and telling the truth and Ugh, since so reading si- since reading this book and and it is so hard and i'm mental like you know how you count like okay i worked out these days oh i haven't worked out for a couple of days like and you're you're mindful of those days i'm mindful of my truth and i've been thinking a lot about Truth, as in I have been, I think journalists are truth tellers. And even as a young girl, for various reasons, I was always like hoping to tell the truth within my family. And it's something very close to home for me. And so I'm interested in truth-telling. I'm interested in the erosion of trust in America when it comes to our political figures and even our own journalists. I put that in air quotes, depending on who you're watching or or what. And I'm interested in the, the world in which I, where I come from, which is media and journalism. And mm-hmm. I have, that's all I'm going to say, but I have an idea around that in that space where I think... You know, a lot of people come to me and they're like, wow, Brooke, now that you're a year removed from CNN, like, what do you watch? What are you, is object, can you truly be objective? What, what, how are you getting your news? And I, and I'm also curious, like, what is the news and a lot of these violent images that certainly was my life and my world for so many years, what is that doing to our brains? And yeah. I'm curious about these people who literally have stopped reading or watching the news. Now I'm not supporting doing that. And and I read every day, but I just I'm I'm curious about these themes and exploring these themes in some form of something. Yeah.
0: No, I think yeah. it's really important because it and it dovetails with what we were talking about earlier, which is the attention economy and yes. the stuff that we're attracted to and give attention to. And yes. is that really what's gonna lead the news or lead the discourse of the day? And so and finding that Venn diagram with what's with responsible citizenry. You know, I think about that too in the context. I'm one of those people who we cut our cable mm. and, mm. and yeah, and I go to, I go to a couple of newspapers and I peruse them or like look at Apple News, but I try, I know obviously like on social too, I'm going to just see it endlessly, yep. but that it, it depletes my, I mean I think it depletes all of us energetically in a way that's not so it's it's that how do you know enough to be engaged yes. without
1: taking your soul too down much?
0: Yeah where you you yes. can't yes. look and yes. I think we're on the other side of responsibility there so I think this, that's very ripe. I'm, this fascinates me. I'm very excited for any concept like that and similarly I think truth and which is the most nebulous concept End most essential concept, but like, is there any single version of the truth? Right. Mm-hmm. I love. So it's only sort of what's true for you. But how do we then? How do we parse that more? So that how do we distinguish between someone's perspective and objective reality? Like, mm-hmm. I think that's such an interesting question.
1: Executive you know? producer of Brooke Baldwin's Truth Show, Elise Lunen. <laughs>
0: Oh, I love Brooke. She has such great energy and she really is larger than life with the most amazing voice and enthusiasm. And I feel like enthusiasm is another underrated quality. Like we shame it out of ourselves and each other, but she really, really wants the best for people. In her book, she interviews so many fascinating people she talks to as she mentioned Stacey Abrams, Shannon Watts from Moms Demand Action, incredible groups all over the country who have been coming together to get stuff done in ways that I think show us the potential of female friendship. And as also mentioned, Brooke and I met about a year ago, right after she left CNN, and have become really good friends. And you kind of it's like when you meet your partner late later in life, your romantic partner and, you know, nobody bats an eye when you're engaged 3 months later cuz you're old enough to have seen unsuccessful relationships and to know what you need. I feel like late in life friendships are the same. Like you go right to it in a way that's so refreshing and so fun and so refreshingly intimate. So for those of you who are also feeling lonely, particularly in the wind down or endlessness of COVID, there's still hope for great female friendships to come. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com.